So I want to begin this morning with a couple of financial updates. Uh, one involves a spam or a phishing email that some people have been getting from me. Uh, and it may begin many blessings and it may be asking you for assistance. But what I want you to know is that that is not a legitimate email. Please do not respond uh, to those emails. Someone is using an elaborate phishing scheme and pretending to be me. And let me tell you, it's not me. I don't know what happens to people like that. I don't know how God looks at people like that who fake being a pastor and trying to get help from people. Uh, but that's God's thing to deal with. But first of all, just know that any email you get from me uh, asking for assistance is not from me. Uh, also check the grammar because the grammar on those emails are is usually very poor. Secondly, and more seriously, I want to update you on where we are financially 11 months in to our fiscal year. And, and it's really incredible news. As you may recall, when we entered the month of March, we were running about $90,000 behind in income. And over the past three months, through your generosity, we've actually cut that gap uh, to less than $60,000, which is incredible. So in March, April, and May, we received $30,000 more than we had actually budgeted for. And so I want to say thank you uh, for just an incredible gift and incredible uh, generosity. As you might expect, our expenses have also been far less than we anticipated. So uh, heading into the month of June, we are actually net positive. Typically in June, it's a big month for us. I would normally be talking probably almost every Sunday about finances because we anticipate a large amount of money in June to close out our fiscal year. I'm, I'm not going to do that this year because we feel that uh, we're in a pretty good spot. We still need your, your regular donations. We still need your tithes and offerings. So by all means, uh, continue to help us. You can give online, as you probably have figured out by now, or you can uh, send your check to the church at 7715 Draper. And uh, again, I just want to say thank you because it's a huge blessing to know that we're going to end this fiscal year in a strong financial position. Heading into next year's fiscal budget, uh, what the elders have decided to do is we're going to plan for a six-month budget. Rather than a full 12-month budget, we want to make certain assumptions about the next six months. So we're playing it conservative. We're forecasting a 10% decrease in income, and we're also cutting all of our departments by about 20% in order to have a balanced budget. We are also putting off the hiring of a couple of staff positions, which we hope to hire as we move into 2021. But ultimately, we want to be prudent. We want to make wise financial decisions. And so that's our plan going forward for the next six months to hold a sort of conservative posture and see how things go. Your, your giving has been incredible. And if it continues the levels that it was, we hope as we move into 2021 that we will resume back to our normal budgeting process and normal dollars for our budgeting. But for now, we want to play it safe. Two weeks ago, I began a new sermon series on the book of Jeremiah. I think an incredible, timely book for us as we make our way through these summer months, as we look at our world and try and figure out how do we as followers of Jesus position ourselves in our culture and in our community. We began that sermon series by talking about how Jeremiah was called, how he was known, how he was set apart, and then how he was called to go and to share a message of God. And then last week we talked about, well, what would, what would he say? And we also asked ourselves the question, what would I say? And today we actually get to experience a part of what Jeremiah said. And then think about what he spoke at the city gates as compared to what we need to be speaking at the temple gates. 
So Jeremiah goes to the temple. It's probably the year 609 BC. Jehoiakim is the king. And he goes and he begins to preach to the people of Israel, proclaiming God's word and God's message. And this is what we read in Jeremiah chapter 7. I want to read the first eight verses and then skip down to 21 through 26, where Jeremiah just adds a little bit more. Actually, all of Jeremiah chapter 7 is his sermon, but we want to just focus in on a couple parts of that. So this is Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 1. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand at the gate of the Lord's house and there proclaim this message. Hear the word of the Lord, all you people of Judah who come through these gates to worship the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says, reform your ways and your actions, and I will let you live in this place. Do not trust in deceptive words and say, this is the temple of the Lord. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. If you really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly, if you do not oppress the foreigner, the fatherless, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not follow other gods to your own harm, then I will let you live in this place, in the land I gave your ancestors forever and ever. But look, you are, in tr you are trusting in deceptive words that are worthless. And then down to verse 21. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says, Go ahead. Add your burnt offerings to your other sacrifices and eat the meat yourselves. When I brought your ancestors out of Egypt and spoke to them, I did not just give them commands about burnt offerings and sacrifices, but I gave them this command. Obey me and I will be your God and you will be my people. Walk in obedience to all I command you that it may go well with you. But they did not listen or pay attention. Instead, they followed the stubborn inclinations of their evil hearts. They went backward and not forward. From the time your ancestors left Egypt until now, day after day, again and again, I sent you my servants, the prophets, but they did not listen to me or pay attention. They were stiff-necked and did more evil than their ancestors. So God says to Jeremiah, Go and stand at the gate of the temple. There were seven gates. So Jeremiah does what most pastors or preachers would do. He goes to the gate of the temple and he begins to play, proclaim God's message. And basically what he says is quit playing church. Quit pretending as though you really believe that you are being obedient to this God who has called you to change your life who has called you to transformation earlier in Jeremiah in chapter four, verse 30, this is what he says. And it's kind of sarcastic, but he says, what are you doing? You devastated one. Why dress yourself in scarlet and put on jewels of gold? Why highlight your eyes with makeup? You adorn yourself in vain. Jeremiah said, y'all are getting dressed up to go to church and you look so good on the outside, but on the inside, nothing has changed. There's been no transformation because a part of what the call of God is about, part of what this call to obedience is about is there's an inward transformation that happens. We talk about this even in our own church that we are to experience and express the transforming love of Jesus Christ. We believe that as you experience the power of Jesus, 
that there is transformation that has to happen or that needs to happen or that actually does happen within your own heart, within your own life. And as you experience that transformation, you then go and express it. And this is the frustration that Jeremiah has. The people of Israel are not expressing the transforming love that God has worked in their lives. They're offering sacrifices, but they're not living in obedience. They're not caring for the poor. They're not standing up for the oppressed. They're not caring about the widow, the disenfranchised, the brokenhearted. And Jeremiah says, you need to live in obedience or else there will be trouble. You need to go back and you need to remember what God has done. So much so that back in Jeremiah chapter 6, verse 16, just in the chapter before what we read this morning, Jeremiah had said this. He says, this is what the Lord says. Stand at the crossroads and look and look. Ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is and walk in it, and you will find rest for your souls. But you said, we will not walk in it. Walk in it. Jeremiah says, go and look for the right path, the good way. Walk in it, and you will find rest for your souls. But Judah instead had said, no, we're going to live our own way. And the false prophets kept reassuring them. They were saying, look, the temple is still here. And because the temple is still here and the temple has not been broken down, then God is still with us. And Jeremiah kept saying, look, God is not going to be with you. That just because the temple is there does not mean that God is fully for you. And if you keep reading in Jeremiah chapter 7, you discover that Jeremiah actually makes an object lesson out of a town called Shiloh. And you may recall that Shiloh was the place where after the Israelites had, had, had gotten ready to prepare to, to go into the promised land, that Joshua gathered the tribes and, and separated them into where they were going to live. It was at Shiloh that Samuel spoke. It was at Shiloh that the Ark of the Covenant rested and the tabernacle was built for the people of God to worship God. But the people, as we read earlier, neglected God. They went their own way. Rather than going forward, they went backward. So much so that in Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 12, this is the word that Jeremiah says. Go now to the place in Shiloh where I first made a dwelling for my name. This is God speaking. And see what I did to it because of the wickedness of my people Israel. Shiloh had been leveled. If you made it your journey from Galilee to Jerusalem, all you saw was rubble. There was nothing left of Shiloh. Because God said, you have not been obedient. And what Jeremiah was trying to say to the nation of Israel, to the nation of Judah, was he was saying, you need to come back to God. You need to be obedient. To obey is better than sacrifice. Your sacrifices don't mean a thing if nothing is being changed internally. And so he calls back for the people of Israel to be obedient, saying this stone temple doesn't mean anything if your hearts are not changed. The Apostle Paul picks up on that later in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 16. You may recall this. Don't you know, Paul says, that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? What God cares about is transformed hearts. He doesn't care if we're dressing up for church or not. What he cares about is, is the power of the Holy Spirit making a difference in our lives. And for Jeremiah, he goes to the gates. 
and he begins to proclaim God's truth. And I've been thinking about that concept in light of all that we are experiencing these days as a nation. What does it look like for me, your pastor, whose calling is to proclaim God's truth, not the temple gates, but in the church, and actually not even in the church today because we're in my house. But what does it look like to proclaim and to hold on to God's truth? And particularly, as we look at verses 5 through 7 of what we read. And these are timely words. You know, I picked this sermon series and these texts long before all the racial tension um, and issues that we are dealing with now. But look at verses 5 through 7 of what Jeremiah says. God is speaking this. And he says, if you really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly, if you do not oppress the foreigner, the fatherless or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place. And if you do not follow other gods to your own harm, then I will let you live in this place, in the land I gave your ancestors forever and ever. Part of my calling, part of who I am as your pastor, is to ask myself the question and ask you the question as well. Are we just playing at church? Are we really allowing God to change our hearts? What does it look like today? Not back in Jeremiah's time, but today for us to stand for the oppressed, for us to stand for the widow, for us to stand up for those who feel as though their voices are not being heard. And a lot of that today in our world is around the issue of race. And the issue of race is not a Republican issue or a Democrat issue or an independent issue. It's an issue that the church has to really wrestle with. What does it mean to love and to speak for our brothers and sisters of color? What is it that God is calling us to be about? What is it that God perhaps is calling us to say? And, and, and this idea that is being given a lot of important language is this idea that, that we need to be anti-racist anti -racist and not just non-racist. Non-racist is passive. Anti-racist is saying, we're going to stand up for, against those things, those structures, those systems that have been around for so many years that have created systemic racism. And these are hard words and these are hard actions. But I think for me to stand at the gates, I have to talk about this stuff. There's no way I can just let it go by. And so I wrote a letter a couple of weeks ago and in that letter, I told you that I'm going to be praying through the month of June every morning at 8 a.m. about, God, what would you have me say? What would you have me do? What would you have me hear? And I recommended a book by Daniel Hill called White Awake. And I've been rereading. That's one of the things I said I wanted to do. And as I've been rereading that book, there have been a couple of things that have been really important that have stood out to me. The first is he differentiates between ethnicity and race. Our ethnicity is based on where it is that we've come from, what our culture is, what our language is, what our cuisine is. I, I, many of you know, I, my descendants are, are Armenian. And so that's part of my ethnic 
story. But race is a social construct. And the issue of race has been one that has been plaguing us down to the time of slavery. Because what happened is you go back and you read your history that, that instead of the church and people speaking out against slavery, we began to compare other races, other colors to being white and began to say that, that being white was that white people were inherently better. And I don't have time to go into all the history of this. I encourage you to read White Awake. Daniel Hill does a great job of, of going into that. But what it's, what it's done is it's created generations of difficulty for all of us as we talk about issues of race. And so I've been praying through this and asking God, what do I need to be about? How can I best serve you? In his book, Daniel Hill quotes from, from Mark chapter 8, and, and, and this really resonated with me. It's the healing of the blind man at Bethsaida. It says, they came to Bethsaida, this is Jesus and the disciples, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, do you see anything? And the blind man looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. So he doesn't see clearly. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened. His sight was restored. And he saw everything clearly. I feel sometimes in my life, and particularly with this issue of race, I'm living in between the touches of Jesus. I don't fully see things clearly. The blind man describes it as that I see people, they look like trees walking around. His vision hasn't been fully given to him. And I think in these discussions, there are many of us who feel like that, who feels like, Lord, would you please give me the second touch so that I can see clearly. But in the middle of that, we have to do some wrestling. I hope all of us are wrestling with this stuff. Of trying to figure out, God, what can we be doing to make sure that we are showing a posture of anti-racism? Not just saying we're not racists. But of saying we want to stand with others. So here's what I want to share. Here's what I've been hearing. Here's what I've been reading. Here's what I've been listening to. Here's what I've been learning. The first is simply a question of asking us, who do we read? Who are your mentors? Who are your teachers? For me, who are the preachers that I listen to? And how many of those people are people of color? How many of them are white? If you were to go into my office and look at my bookshelf, it would be absolutely dominated probably by white men. And so the issue is if we're not reading people of color, we're not being having friends who are people of color, 
We're not being mentored or taught by people of color. I'm not listening to people of color who are preaching and teaching God's word. How am I going to learn? And so that's one of the things I want to work on. The second thing is I'm trying to figure out is, is how can I better listen at the margins? To listen to voices that I don't always hear. I was really proud a week ago Friday of the La Jolla clergy. A number of us showed up the Black Lives Matter protest that took place in La Jolla. To stand in solidarity with our black brothers and sisters. To listen to their voices from the margin. Because it's not a voice that I always hear. Thirdly, what I'm trying to figure out is, is, is how do I, where is God already at work? Where are those ministries that we are already supporting as a church that I can partner with, that we can partner with, of Urban Life, of Big Table, of Ebenezer Church in Linda Vista, working in some difficult communities? And rather than me trying to reinvent the wheel or decide what could best be done, to figure out ways to partner with them. I want to hear people's stories. You know, we talk about this as a church, that we care about God's story and your story and our story. And I need to hear stories of my brothers and sisters who are people of color. I need to know what they're experiencing and what they're feeling. A friend of mine at Ebenezer Church said, and Paul, you, you, you work in a prominent church. You have a, an important voice that can be shared by being the pastor at La Jolla Presbyterian Church. And I'm thinking through, how do I use that voice? How do I help, help to bring justice and hope to my friends who often feel a lack of hope and a lack of justice? I'm going to be talking to our elders about looking at our own church culture, our own church organization. Uh, someone sent me an article the other day saying, is your organization an anti-racist organization? And of course, we would say, of course it is. But is it really? And so I want to begin exploring some of those options as well. And thinking through at La Jolla Press, how do we stand with our friends? How do we speak out against the racist tendencies that so many people have? A week ago Friday, or a week ago Thursday, rather, I was down at Palisades Presbyterian Church. There was a gathering of Presbyterian pastors and leadership to pray, to lament, to express our concern, our own culpability in the racism that has pervaded our nation for so many years. And as I sat there and listened, and as I sat there and reflected, I said to God, you know what? I'm just weary. I'm tired. I'm tired of COVID. I'm tired of being locked away and locked up, it seems like, for three months. I'm tired of the conversations that we have around racism with nothing ever seeming to happen. And I'm just weary. And I wanted God to somehow feel sorry for me, I guess. But instead of God feeling sorry for, my, for me, he convicted me and he said, Paul, how do you think your friends of color feel? You've had to feel weary for three months. Many of your friends and their families 
have felt weary for generations because they've been standing up for so long in the fight for justice, in the fight to be treated fairly. And I was just hit with this overwhelming sense of saying, Lord, help me not to walk away. Because I think sometimes I just have. I've spoken the right words. And then I've walked away. But I don't want to walk away. I want to stand at the gate like Jeremiah did. And proclaim God's truth. I want to stand with the oppressed. I want to stand with the marginalized. I want to stand with the widow. I want to stand with the orphan. And I want to say, we can do better. And we can do better because of Jesus Christ. And so I keep thinking to myself those words of Isaiah 40, as the prophet ends there, Lord, I want to soar like an eagle. I want to run and not grow weary. I want to walk and not faint. And God, I want to do that in a way that is honoring of you and honoring of my friends who are people of color. And so I pray you'll hope you will join me in that journey. Let's pray. God, thank you for this day. And um, Lord, it's a struggle. But God, we want to see. We want to be like that blind man whose eyes, who Jesus touched that second time and his eyes were open. And he could see clearly. God, would you touch us in such a way? Sometimes things are muddled and sometimes things are not totally clear. But we would pray that you would touch us and open our eyes so we can see clearly. So we can do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with you. Lord, that those would not simply be words, but that we would live those things out. We ask and pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.